Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dan. Today, I'm joined by Maxime Kramer. Maxime, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Leo. I'm really excited about our chat. I'll start off by letting you introduce yourself. Go ahead. Sure thing. So, hi, everyone. So, I'm Maxime. I'm based in London in the UK, and I've been in tech for, I want to say, over 10 years now, properly. And uh, I started out as an iOS developer, but now I work predominantly with female founders, non-technical female founders, but really anyone from minority backgrounds that are kind of looking to start their own their own star- startup. And they're, you know, they've really got questions about how do you build tech? How does it work? They bring a lot of expertise from their own domains, but the tech part is is new. And I love working with people and kind of showing them how do you build your first MVP, you know, app or not. And yeah, I would say that's that's mostly what I get up to these days. So uh, it sounds like most of your projects are kind of brand new projects, brand new apps, right? What are some mistakes that developers make when they first get onto a project like this? Yeah, I think there are a couple. I mean, there's new developers in their career. And then there's, I guess, developers who are doing these types of projects for the first time. And, and I can briefly touch on both. I think developers who are new to the career are very excited, which is awesome, and very focused on the technology in and of itself, right? They're like, ooh, okay, I have this one task. How can I do it the best way possible? And how can I learn as much as possible about the language and the syntax and how it works and how to write it super eloquently, which is great because that's how we learn. So I definitely don't want to discourage that in any way, shape or form. But I would say there is a level of practicality with work that comes as well and it comes over time. And it's like, well, why are we actually writing this code? Is it because this is really needed? Is it a bug fix? Is it something a user needs? Is it something the business needs? And just having that context in the back of your mind as well. So you know how to apply your skills to the project at the right level. But at the same time, it's it's how we learn and it's how this community is filled with really cool people that share like all these interesting quirks that they learn. So I wouldn't discourage it. It's just sometimes it can, if, if left unchecked, <laughs> it can go very much into the realm of like over-engineering things, I think. And the second thing, so when people are new to the projects that kind of I see like founders, first-time founders working with, it's similar, but there is a huge focus on practicality. Like these folks often have very little budget and they need to know what can be done with that budget. And so, you know, engineers are like, yeah, I'll figure it out as I go. Because, you know, oftentimes we are writing things for the first time. Even when we have tons of experience, you know, every project, every screen, everything is a little bit new. And oftentimes the founders are looking for more precise (laughs) answers, which we can't always give. And so that's a bit of a back and forth conversation, right? There's no one in the right or wrong. It's just be prepared that the practicality part plays a huge role in the work. Do you think there's some misunderstandings when it comes to founders as far as what exactly, I don't want to say what exactly developers do, but more like how they solve problems. What do you think are some like big misconceptions, I guess, that they have? Oh, absolutely. I think people think it's a a skill like building a house or something where it's like, we, we use that analogy a lot, actually, like building a house, both for good and bad. <laughs> but, you know, after you've built like 25 bathrooms, there's this idea that you know how to build a bathroom. And I think with development, it's similar in the sense that once you've built an onboarding flow a couple times, like you kind of know how to do it and you get better at it. But at the same time, with the speed that technology changes, new APIs, SDKs that are always coming out, the nuances and differences between projects, the different APIs that you're integrating with, every project is a bit new. And we do indeed need some wiggle room to figure out like, gosh, 
how does this work? <laughs> and so estimates are, as we all know, estimates are estimates. <laughs> I was just thinking like, oh, like nobody is ever going to ask for a bathroom that if you sit on the toilet, the TV turns to a certain channel and uh, sends you a push notification. Like, like software is a lot more complex. Like there's a lot exactly. of inter- interconnected pieces, whereas with building a house, like everything is separate and like, yeah, plumbing is plumbing, but like at the same time, it's like it, it's been done for hundreds of years and it's all not, it's not soft like software. I think especially what you said about it's been done for hundreds of years. So there's a much better understanding of what it should do. And like you say, very weird requests like random TV channels that happen at different times of, of the day in the bathroom is unlikely. Whereas with software, it's like, ooh, like what could I do? And there are these dreams that people conjure up. And they're very hard to realize. And you said as well, interconnectivity, which is, is really true. And I think that's the part, I think that's the part that is completely missing because one of the first things I have to teach founders is there are different types of engineers because there are different types of development. A backend engineer is not a frontend engineer, is not an iOS engineer, is not an Android engineer, is not a DevOps engineer, and et cetera, et cetera. But a project still oftentimes needs a lot of these different components, even within just one domain, so many different components. And so that the more components, the more potential, you know, room for error and margin. And so it's not like, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. Now I'm going to do it. And now I've done it, (laughs) which is what oftentimes other people think, because that's how a lot of the work that they've known, how that goes. Yeah, that's a really great point. One of the things you touched upon in your presentation at 360 iDev was the widening gap in expertise when it comes to like technology. Because it, it seems to me like one of the things I've noticed is, especially with the internet over the last 12 years and, and with the iPhone, is like the internet tended to be like, especially in the late 90s, kind of highly technical folks. And as the internet became more accessible, there's been more people, more people with less technical expertise. And at the same time, apps, web browsers, web pages have become a lot more technically complex. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Just that I thought that was really interesting point in the presentation was that widening gap. Yes. So would you like me to just kind of go over what I meant by that or... Yeah, and then also, and also, just like, how does that affect the way like founders now can be less technically expertise, and also they need people with more technical expertise yeah. a lot of times yeah, yeah. in order to implement their ideas. Absolutely, it's a it's a really funny juxtaposition, isn't it? Because right. at the same time, indeed, like like you, I think what you're trying to say is like it's less technical as well as more technical all at right. the same time. Exactly. I think that's really cool personally. Not cool in the sense that people feel a particular way about it, which I'll get to in a second. But it means that the internet isn't just, is no longer just created by those who are technically minded. Everyone has a chance to contribute to it, which is why I get so excited about the work that I do. But it absolutely brings that challenge of like, okay, we're all in this space together. So how do we work together? How do we communicate with each other so that we can all work towards a common goal? At least if you're in the same team or same project, you're working towards a common goal. And that's really challenging. And what I find, what I'm still heartbroken by is that so many people who are non-technical have a real deep sense of fear 
and almost shame for not understanding technology. And that's what I mean with the feeling part. It's like they have all these questions and they're not sure how to ask them. I had a founder say to me, who's on my program at the moment, she's like the first time she asked for help. She was like, she posted on this board, this women's forum. Uh, it's like, hi, I'm looking for an engineer to help me out. And someone replied and said, sure, what language? And she said, you know, well, you know, thinking it's international nowadays. So English would be great. Thank you. Right. And that is just some of those people. And she's like, now she realized and she's like, God, that must have been so stupid. And she had people laugh at her when she asked the difference between a front end and a back end engineer. And it's like everyone at some point was new to learning how this works. And, you know, it, the questions aren't the problem. It's just the feeling and sometimes the response by some people that makes it really difficult. And so that widening of the gap is, I think, something that with folks who have understanding in how all of this works, which is definitely us, <laughs> We have to realize not everyone has had that same background or perhaps that, ooh, like, let me be on the internet in the 90s and learn all of this fun stuff. At least that, that was what it was like for me. And so how can we bring them along? Hi, everyone. I'm Dave Verwa, and you might know that I run the Swift Package Index along with Sven Schmidt. Thanks so much to Leo for inviting us to talk a little bit about the Package Index today. SwiftPackageIndex.com is the place to find Swift packages. We have over 5,000 packages indexed, so no matter what you're looking for, you'll find something that can help. But what we do is about more than just finding a library. We want to help you make better decisions about your dependencies. So for every package, you can see how well-maintained it is, what platforms and Swift versions it's compatible with, based on real-world build data, how many other dependencies it will bring in, and much more. We also host Doxy-based documentation for package authors. But I'd also like to talk to you about what it takes to keep a site like this going. Running the package index requires constant ongoing effort maintaining the site and supporting package authors. Our work is primarily funded by the Swift community. And since you're listening to a Swift podcast, you're part of that community. So if our site has helped you find a package, or if you want to support a community-run open-source project, please go to swiftpackageindex.com, look for the pink heart, and join over a hundred other people who support our work through GitHub sponsors. Thanks so much, Leo, and we'll let you get back on with the show now. Yeah, and like one of the things that just when you were talking about that anecdote made me think is like we had a we did an episode on learning new APIs. Just we all have to learn new stuff, even those mm -hmm. of us who are highly technically expertise. And one of the things that I've run into when I'm learning something new is I'll assume a ton of things. And then I'll go into it with my mental model and then I'll be like, well, why isn't this working the way I thought it did? And you realize my whole mental model is wrong. And this poor, poor lady is like asking like, well, or they're, they're asking her, right. What, what language and like, like how is she supposed to know that they were specifically talking about programming language? Like, I, I think there's something almost helpful about like going into something, just asking open-ended questions rather than like, like what this person was doing is like asking what programming language like she was going to know. Like it was just, yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's unfortunate because there is a lot in the industry of like, I don't want to say like arrogance, but just like, what's the word I'm looking for? Just an assumption that, you know, you're supposed to know everything and you're supposed to ask the right questions. And that's, that's really unfortunate. It is. And, but it's, it's also understandable, like, the more I work in this domain, in this in-between, <laughs> the more I realize no one's at fault. We're all learning, we're all figuring it out. 
What I find really fun about talking to developers again and coming to conferences and, and doing the talk that I did, for example, is, you know, the aha moment for engineers being like, yeah, I realize I'm talking to a lot of other engineers or product managers or people in the industry, right? The, the Silicon Valley bubble, if you will, even if you're not in California. And actually, there are people outside of that, too, like that are trying to interact with this industry, if you will. And just by knowing that, suddenly you can you completely change perhaps how you interact with someone. And that's really all it is. It's not, some people are rude. They're, you're never going to get rid of like people who are rude. <laughs> you're never going to avoid that. Let me put it that way. But most people are just unaware at first. And then when they realize, they're like, oh, cool. Okay, well, I can help or I can try and explain or I can actually show you what types of engineers there are, et cetera, et cetera. And just by drawing attention to it, I think there's so much we can do. Yeah, and just taking like a few steps back uh, rather than jumping into the more technical questions and asking them more more about a person's goals and a person's like what what their expectations are, I think are super important rather than just getting into the technical matter of things that we often do. One of the things you had in, you talked about is like developer happiness. And I know I'm I am prone to this just as much as a lot of us. We want to build things like in a fun way, right? We want to build something that's fun. We want to learn something new. But oftentimes that gets in the way of the goal of the product. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Sure. So the story I told in the presentation was of a founder I was working with a couple of years ago, and she had worked with this engineer who at the time had built the project in uh, using Reactive Cocoa which uh, was this signal-based framework just before Swift that a certain, you know, a certain set of people really, really loved. And she then hired a couple other engineers, and this engineer went on to another project, I believe. And the new set of engineers had never used Reactive Cocoa. So they were just like, what's going on? Like, we can't work out this code base. And it, it was really challenging for them to make the changes that were necessary. Because at this point, she'd launched the app on the app store, it'd been featured, and she was looking to fix some bugs and like basically go to the next version, et cetera. And that was costing extra time and obviously for her extra money because these are all still contractors and so on. And she was not VC funded. This was all coming from her savings. And in that context, you start to realize the implications, I think, of a, of a decision like that, even though that's probably not at all what the engineer had intended. Um, I never spoke with them, so I, I can't tell their side of the story. And so, yeah, that begs the question, what's the right time for developer happiness? And I think there are a couple of things to think about. One, if you are employed by, I would say, a fairly stable company, so medium-sized startup, right, like 50, 100 people plus, they have some, they have some funding, and uh, all the way up to corporate, and you're spending a lot of time in that code base, developer happiness makes a big difference. It can make you work faster. It can make you work more efficiently. It can, in turn, actually give outsized returns on the speed of the product and the project and, and you know, perhaps lead to fewer bugs and so on. I don't know the stats personally for all of that. I'm sure some people have come on the show and, and have told you about them, but I can see why it makes a difference. I think when you're still thinking about the five to 10 people team trying to build something, the product, the customer, the revenue is key. Like, you know, it, there's no point optimizing something that isn't out yet or isn't generating revenue or isn't bringing returns back for the company at that size or convincing investors that this is a great bet. And it's just a different kind of project. And so I think it attracts a certain type of engineer uh, that is perhaps a bit more, you know, product focused or user oriented or business oriented. 
what I see then is with contractors or people trying to help is they take their approach from their typical job where they are either contracting on bigger projects or clients who have more funding and they apply that same approach to this kind of project. And that's, I think, where the mismatch is happening. It's not whether developer happiness is a goal worth chasing or not. It's like, when do you apply it? Yeah, I'd almost be like either, yeah, with an app like that, like either that person that you're bringing on the team, you need them on long term, right, to maintain the app. Or like you have some sort of bridge when the reactive Cocoa person's on that helps with the new developers coming on the team. Or you just like look at building. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's a really tough call, right? Because you find it's hard enough to find an engineer and then be like, oh, you can't do it. Use reactive cocoa. I don't even know how you would deal with that per se. Or you just avoid like, and I think this goes to to one of your other things. It's like using shortcuts as opposed to building the most complex app right away, especially when you're in that MVP stage, right? And you just want to make sure that you have the audience there for the product before you invest the time and money for it, right? Exactly. And that's also the challenge because you can't bring that person on long term because you literally right. can't afford them right. exactly. to be there every day. You can only afford them for a week, couple weeks at a time to do certain features or certain right. bug fixes. And so it leads to a very choppy versed version. Like most MVPs are very choppy unless you have a technical co-founder or a technical engineer that's like a founding engineer who's really there all the time. Otherwise, the code base will see many hands on them. And so some confusion and choppiness is inevitable. But I think... I remember a slight deviation from this. When we started using React Native at Artsy, that was really challenging for the first couple months. And I I did a talk on that uh, with Facebook, uh, learning how to learn. And I'm sure that's kind of what you were saying about learning new API and so on. What I remember being very confusing was when I was looking at a piece of code or a line, I was like, is this a React thing? Is this a React Native thing? Is this a JavaScript thing? Or is this just a we did it in our code base thing? And that makes it very hard to Google. And so the more of those types of... I was about to say that, yeah. Yeah, the more types of frameworks like that that you introduce, the more confusing it becomes for anyone reading it uh, or jumping in. And that's why, again, you want to use shortcuts, so you're going to use a lot of libraries, but at the same time, like certain methodologies, right? Like There's no right or wrong answer. It's just these things happen at the start. And so being mindful that other people might have to jump in might just be all that's required. A lot of what you're talking about reminds me of the stuff I've read up on like lean startup methodologies where you're just kind of like building as quickly as possible to, to, to test a hypothesis as opposed to like necessarily building a product that's going to be maintained in the long term. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. That's another myth I have to bust for the founders very often. I'm like, what you're investing in right now, this code base, it's very unlikely to be around three years from now. Like it just and, and that's OK. The goal of what you're creating right now is to get you to the next step. It's like yep, checkpoints. Exactly. <laughs> and that's just how it is. And so that as well, again, thinking about the house analogy and thinking about we know how to build this and I'm investing in this and it's now an asset and I have it. That's quite an interesting model to break for for new founders because that's how they think about it. And that's, as we know, not really how it works. You want to build a tent first and see if you like it. And then, okay, then you build a mobile home or whatever the next step is. Yeah, totally. Um, Have you, have you looked at, have you had situations where you've just been like, you should not build an app. We need to like do something else. Like I think in the, in the talk, you talked about these like quick build 
app build tools, but I'm, I mean, even like less appy than that, but just like, just test an idea that there's even an audience for what you're building before you build the app. Absolutely. To be honest, that's what I spend most of my time doing. <laughs> I get a lot of Zoom calls and like, oh, can I, you know, like uh, jump on a call with you and like pick your brain and stuff. And so I've kind of limited limited that to a couple hours a week. And nine times out of 10, I say you should not be building an app. Like this sounds like a mission-based project or this sounds like content-based. So build that audience first, you know, start a newsletter, start a Instagram, like start whatever you want to do. And then think about, you know, an app for example. Uh, And often I just have to say how much it costs to build an app and people are like, you know, they didn't realize that. Sometimes though, there's that in-between bit, which is one of the ones also I mentioned in the talk, which was a client who wanted a community app. Like she already has a business, she's got loads of clients and she wanted to bring her networking skills into an app. She's always wanted her own app. There are existing platforms that do this. You just need to wrap them into an app and then you're done. Like you do not have to build another login screen, another direct messaging feature and another like, you know, forum board and upload your photo and all this. Like why, why are we creating the same code over and over and over again? Like just use something that exists, brand it, wrap it and you're done. And that's what she ended up doing. And that, how did that work out? If you mind me asking. So it's still in progress for her. Um, She's launching it with her client base. We are just finishing it up now. So I will let you know, but she's very happy with it. And her quote for a initial MVP was over 70,000 US. And this was done under 10. Like, and that most of that is like a year long subscription to to the app wrapping service. Uh, And I suggested the service because they can maintain that for her. They can support her throughout, you know. Um, But yeah, it's much simpler. Hey folks, I want to let you know about an app I've been working on, Bushel. If you're a Mac OS developer, this is the perfect app for you. Bushel is the Mac OS virtual machine app for developers who want rigorous and uncompromising testing in their app. Bushel is focused on giving you a complete native capabilities of the Mac OS operating system for all your testing requirements. Right now, I'm looking for folks who are interested in beta testing the app as it's currently in beta. Bushel is going to be a great app if you want to test out different localizations, different operating system, going back all the way to Big Sur, I want to make sure your app still works. Let's say you have a bash script, for instance, and you want to test it out and you don't care if it breaks the Mac and you want to make sure you can revert back. You can do all that with this app. It does snapshots, different version testing, and all sorts of things that are perfect if you want to make sure that your app is working. I was always jealous of iOS developers having a simulator, so I made my own app to do the same thing with Bushel. So sign up now, go to getbushel.app, sign up with your email address and get a test flight invite today. Again, go to getbushel.app to sign up and get your test flight invite. Thank you so much for taking time to listen and I hope you enjoy the rest of the program. So we kind of talked about a little bit about taking a couple steps back when you're talking to a founder. What are some ways to just help developers communicate clearly and ask the right questions? Yeah, I think firstly, it depends on who you're talking to. I will, you know, founder specifically, there are certain things, but I think this works with anyone, product managers, designers, because it's funny, the reason I ended up, slight side story again, how I ended up in all of this, um, I've always been known as the translator between teams. And I was always working with different stakeholders and 
in the room always being like, oh, well, this is the implication of what this person is saying. <laughs> like, this is what it's actually going to mean for the other side, if that makes sense. And so this whole notion of, of miscommunication in tech isn't just between founders and engineers or non-techie people and engineers. It's like, I think we see this a lot within startups too. So step one to like kind of improving communication is just what's the other person trying to achieve and what's my role in the context of helping them achieve that? And what am I trying to achieve equally, right? Because you don't want those to be completely out of whack. But say that as a team, you're building something and you obviously play a role in building that. It's like, okay, where are they trying to get and how do I fit into that? Great. Now, if there are decisions that you're making or you're seeing different outcomes, so someone's saying, we want, for example, like you said, TV in the bathroom, you might be like, well, we could do that. But, (laughs) you know, is it really necessary? Like you're wondering all these different things and you're wondering about all of these potential issues. Like, for example, the risk of uh, electricity in the bathroom. I don't know about y'all in the US. I know you have hair dryers in the bathrooms. In the UK. Right. UK is a bit more strict, I've heard. Yeah. yeah, very, very, very strict. I'm very upset. I can't like straighten my hair in the bathroom, for example. <laughs> so because you as the techie person understand all the implications, you just have to tell them that. <laughs> and I think that's something where oftentimes you say, well, we can do that, but it would be this many days or like if we really have to or, but actually there's so much more, we have so much more room for negotiation, I think, than we sometimes think. Maybe we've been shut down a couple of times and we've said, well, actually this is, you know, problematic or something. And maybe product manager hasn't agreed in the past, but more often than not, we have room for negotiation. And so I see it as our um, responsibility to explain the implications of certain technical decisions in a very open conversation way and say, hey, I know you're trying to achieve this. This is what I'm seeing here. This is a potential outcome. Does that work? Or, you know, are there other ways that you can achieve that? Like, how important is it that we achieve that in this particular manner? Like, for example, with the TV in the bathroom, what are we trying to address here? Is it boredom? Is it just that you want like a cool techie bathroom? Can we achieve that with some fun lights? Can we achieve that with some magazines, like music? Like what, what, what's the goal here? And just by asking these questions, suddenly the whole energy changes and it becomes about collective problem solving as opposed to I'm telling you what to do. Fine. I'm going to do it, but I don't like it. Or I think it's stupid mm-hmm. or, you know, sometimes we can get right. into that energy. And I think just by asking open-ended questions, we can really shift that. I'm just looking at the question list. Was there something in particular that you feel like we've missed yet that you want to talk about? I think also um, how to support other engineers. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's say you are like a CTO and you've been brought on by, you know, a founder to help out. What, what can you do to like help your team communicate effectively and also be that bridge between the engineers and the founder, but, but in a supportive way to both the founder and the engineers, if you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, again, I don't. There, there's no right or wrong in this case in the sense that it's not one versus the other. It's about bringing everyone together. And both parties should massively benefit from that, I think. There are a couple ways, I think, to support your team in terms of, I think sometimes engineers really love developing. Like they like writing code. And so documentation is like, if I must, <laughs> you know, like all of the like meetings, if I must, but like, Ideally, like, let me just, you know, go to town in Xcode. 
And I think so firstly, it's like, how can we address the purpose of communication and find the right balance between over-communicating and under-communicating? Because I think engineers as well are very scarred by the whole like, oh, we're having meetings for meetings sake. So if you're in between the two, like as a CTO, firstly, like ask the product team, the founder and so on, like, what's the purpose of each meeting? Let's make sure that they are as effective as they can be. Let's make sure there's agenda, what we're trying to solve here, because we're taking people away from their computer, lo and behold. And so there needs to be a reason for that. But then also, I want you to make use of them as much as possible and their knowledge in those meetings. So is there prep work? How can we actually effectively run this meeting? Now, I know this has been said a million times before. I'm not the first person saying this, but I think that is a massive help. And then also noticing kind of, again, what are people actually trying to say? (laughs) Because there's oftentimes communication, what people are saying, and then what they're trying to achieve. And the more in tune you get with that, and the more you can jump in and say, hey, it sounds like actually we're trying to achieve this so-and-so, like, you know, someone on your team, like, I know you've worked on that piece of API. Can we talk a little bit about why that might be, you know, a a week-long project rather than a one-day project? Because it sounds to me that you're expecting this to be a really quick fix, but it might not be. Like, what do you know about that? Like, just being that bridge continuously between some of these ping-pong, sorry, conversations that are going back and forth. And then I think lastly, for everyone, use the common denominator of communication, which is everyday language. And, you know, we briefly spoke about metaphors before the call and um, metaphors, stories. These things really help to understand how things work. And I can talk for days about why that is. I'll pause (laughs) here. But using, using things like that really help. And so encouraging your team to do the same, or if they have questions as to why, you know, having that open dialogue with them about why it might be helpful would be really great. I've talked about this before. I don't know if I've talked about on this podcast, but like there's the book by the, by the Heath brothers, I believe made to stick. And one of the things I talk about Mm -hmm. is like the little experiment where you tell somebody to tap a certain song and then you see if somebody else can recognize the song that they were tapping. And of course they never can Mm -hmm. because it's just a bunch of tabs. Yeah. And like, I feel like sometimes communication can be like that where we, we think we're making the point, but we're also, we're inserting, a, we already have a bunch of assumptions that we're just not communicating as well, or we're using jargon. And I think it's really great that you point out like the power of metaphors and, and, and stories and similes and things like that to kind of give a better, like you said, using everyday words to describe something. Uh, in that sense, I think is super helpful because they're, they don't have the 20 years of tech experience that comes with, with what we do. So, yeah. Exactly. And I would say the same for them when they're trying to achieve something, the more metaphors they can use, the better, because what is so beautiful about them is you instantly get a whole bunch of properties applied to something with very little effort. So when you think of a house, you think of a structure, you think of rooms, you think of security, you think of people together, you think of safety from the elements. Like there's all of these notions that you even, you don't even consciously think about when a house, but like they immediately apply to, if you say something else is like a house, you think safety, shelter, community, warmth, like so many other things without having to say all of those words. And that's the beauty about using analogies and so on. And when we're explaining very complicated things, that the metaphors might hold up perfectly. But if someone can get 80% of the way there because you compared it to 
I don't know, a highway of getting from A to B or whatever it is, a handshake, which is often how I talk about APIs. People are expecting a certain level of uh, how things connect together in a protocol. You know, suddenly people have some sense, at least, and they can then use that to understand and, and think of their next question to get to the deeper issue of the problem, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think I have one more, one or two more questions. Was there anything else you wanted to mention before we close out? Not necessarily. Really? Okay. So this is the, the situation that I've run into. So we've talked about how developers can be difficult to deal with at times, but there's also the case where the founder has been difficult to deal with. Oftentimes you can, so there's a few things I've run into. I think the biggest one is the founder has a lot of knowledge about what they do and what their company does. But when they start working on a technical project, they have, there's questions that come up about how certain processes uh, work. And you can kind of tell the founder had never thought about that. And they don't know how to like communicate that, or maybe they just don't have an answer for it. Is there anything you could do to deal with those kind of situations, I guess? Does that make sense? It does. It does. It depends on the founder. Because I will say as well, like, so one of the things I tell a lot of the founders I work with is you have to learn a certain amount of this. Like, you can't circumvent like you can't run a tech startup or try and build a tech startup and have absolutely no idea what an API is, right? You don't need to learn to program. Like you taking a two-week Python course isn't going to do anything, <laughs> but there are certain things you need to know. And then there are the founders who indeed just don't want that. They're like, I just want to tell someone what to do and, and that's it. That's all that my role is. And I would say those are not great founders to work with because a good founder will first and foremost look at their at themselves and say, what can I do? to improve the situation. So if they are new to a certain process, I would hope that they would have that kind of learning mindset and say, okay, well, what do I need to know about this? Can you help me get up to speed with this? Like, how can I learn what I need to learn in order to help you do what you need to do so we can do what we are trying to do together? If they're not in that way, like I would try and suggest that and say, hey, okay, so how about we sit down for half an hour and I'll show you why these processes are helpful and what you need to know about them or how you can help us help you. <laughs> you know, I think that as a starting point would be great. And if they say, listen, we don't have time for that. I'm too busy. Can't you just figure it out? That's your job. I would say that's not a great person to work for personally. That's a bit of a red flag. Yeah, exactly. And and I think too, like there's, there's a misunderstanding of there's like, what is it? The the things you don't know that you don't know that I think founders need to be willing to understand there are going to be blanks that they're going to have to fill that they might think. Like like you said, like we've been saying, there's assumptions that they're making that might not be correct, especially when it's applied in a technical fashion with, a, with an app or something like that. So, yeah, great point. Yeah. Anything else before we close out? I think we covered it pretty well. I think so too. And I think it's just communication is a, is a, it's just a juggling thing that never ends. It's the same in our relationships. It's the same with our families, it's the same with our friends, it's the same at work. Just because it's technical doesn't change necessarily the fact that communication is tricky and it's a skill to get better at. And, you know, sometimes we, the word soft skill really annoys me. You know, we think, oh, communication, it's a soft skill. It's a nice to have, but also it's fundamental to literally every single thing we do. So 
you know, I think it's worth thinking about. I think it's worth investing in, whether that's something you choose to do personally as an engineer or whoever you are, or whether it's something you choose to do as a team for the benefit of work. You know, it, it's, it comes with you from job to job. It's never wasted. It's never a wasted investment the way I see it. So yeah, I, I would say that's just like one of the reasons I'm really excited about it. <laughs> um, and then of course I apply it to specifically between like tech and non-tech folk, but you know, in general though, it's a great skill. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I think I always interpret soft skill is not like necessarily superfluous maybe, but like soft skill, it's hard to grasp. It's not, it's not a hard tangible thing. It's not an equation or a piece of a function that you can just unit test. It's, you can't just run grammarly and expect your, uh, your communication to turn out clearly. So yeah, I've always, I've always really, really, um, it's a, it's a great skill to have probably more so than, than the technical stuff that you can just learn on a blog post. So that's amazing that you do that. Thank you so much, Maxine, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was a real joy. And it was, uh, as I said, I love talking about this stuff. So thanks. Where can people find you online? Yeah, I am at Menenia on most platforms. Uh, and that is now also my business name. So Menenia.com. And if, you know, you're in a bit of a bind, you're like, gosh, I would love to improve productivity in my team. Reach out. We'd love to chat to you about that. I do uh, teach a bunch of corporate workshops and so on on design thinking and communication. So happy to happy to chat about that anytime. Thank you so much. Thanks. People can find me on Twitter at LeoGDM. My company is Break Digit. Take some time to like and subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. And if you're on a podcast player, please send us a review. Let us know what we should be talking about. And we will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Bye, everyone.